Hello listeners, I would just like to apologise for my microphone in this episode. I've gone through editing and I've had to use the Discord audio rather than our local audios anyway because my microphone was worse there. But I don't know what it is, I might have been too close to it or the Discord was, I don't know, something. It makes me sound utter trash, everyone else is fine, so if you just ignore the quality of my microphone, I promise you it gets better uh, for next episode. Alright, thank you. Enjoy the episode. Hello, welcome to Christmas Actually with Luke Allen and Lara Collier, the podcast that takes a look at the Richard Curtis film Love Actually, one day at a time. Wednesday the 23rd of December, actually. I'm one of your hosts, Luke Allen. I'm joined, as always, with my co-host, Lara Collier. Hello. And our special guest for this week, Rory Elwood. Hello there. And Ollie Ryder. Hey. So in any order, um, would you like both to briefly say who you are and what it is you do? So my name is Rory Elwood. I'm a uh, producer and military technical advisor living in uh, New York City. Um, where I grew up not far from here, and I've been working in the industry since 1988. Wow, that is brilliant. And Ollie, who are you? <laughs> you kind of feel like I should have gone first, because... <laughs> um, I'm Ollie Ryder, I'm a stand-up comedian, and I am part of the Sitcan podcast, where we review episodes of Friends, and also my own podcast, which is All Things Dark and Distasteful. Brilliant. And now we will we we've we've completed sit canned bingo on this show um <laughs> in having all three of you on, which is great. Um sit canned is one of the few podcasts I stay up to date with, so it's good. Um oh, thank you. I did um even put myself through Where's Rodney last night to listen oh. and uh oh. the, the the sad thing is I found it way more entertaining than I should have done. <laughs> like <laughs> I, I I think it I think it's I think it's better than Big Bang Theory for comedy. Um, I, th- I think it's. Uh, I'd I'd have watched more episodes of Where's Rodney. Uh, if I were. would have loved to have seen where on earth where on earth it was going to go after that. Yeah, but <laughs> sadly we'll never know. Because what kid actually idolizes Rodney Dangerfield? And <laughs> what what I felt more, found more confusing was the whole thing, obviously, about to to all the listeners who haven't watched Where's Rodney or seen your episode on Where's Rodney, the failed sitcom pilot, and they should check that out. But one thing I found really confusing is the whole concept about it possibly being because they're both called Rodney, but that isn't Rodney Dangerfield's birth name. <laughs> oh, it, it isn't. Yeah, I can't remember what it was. I was on IMDb last night seeing if there was anything else I'd seen Rodney Dangerfield in. And I remember his birth name really surprised me. Hang on, I'm going to double check this. Um, I bet no one expected this episode to involve a discussion about Rodney Dangerfield. Okay, so Rodney Dangerfield is called um, Jacob Cohen. Uh... Which just kind of ruins the sitcom all the more. But, but yeah. I, have a, I have an odd Rodney Dangerfield anecdote. 
Um, <gasps> oh, yes. <laughs> when, when I was when I was at, at university, I, I worked on I did concerts. It was one of my day jobs, and uh, they had Rodney Dangerfield came to the campus, and so I did. Um, he did two shows, and the one thing that struck me is that he always seemed like such a spontaneous guy. Everything in his show, like he did two shows back to back, they were identical. Like every line, every pause, every joke, every waiting for a laugh, everything was exactly identical, which I which I thought was remarkable. Oh my goodness. Lara, I'm expecting the answer, but do you have any idea who Rodney Dangerfield is? No. <laughs> no, that's that's fair. A lot of people don't. <laughs> Hence, what makes the sitcom even weirder, I think, because even in even at that point, I mean, I wasn't around them, but even at that point, I feel like no one was thinking about Rodney Dangerfield. <laughs> and it was um, optioned twice, yeah. which is really sad. <laughs> so, um, outside of uh, we, we tackled our experiences with Roger De- Rodney, in, which, right? So we tackled our experiences with Rodney Dangerfield. What are your experiences with this film, Love Actually? <laughs> I, I love a good Rodney Dangerfield Emma Thompson transition. I think that's. <laughs> I, I I appreciate that you picked one of the saddest moments in the film and invited me on. That's really good. Good English hospitality. <laughs> hey, we're heading into the holidays. Why don't we get you good and depressed? It's 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 very odd because it's it's like at at every level you think this film wouldn't work like you know um, like if you just analyzed it as a film people go oh that would never work and yet it is you know become a classic you know for you we've know. found that so many things we've all, we've sort of complained about and been like oh that doesn't work it's like yeah when we watch the film in its entirety it does <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah it's it's kind of genius how it works and it came so close to not working in the, they, they kind of, they basically re-edited the entire film because the first time they showed it, it did not work at all. Um, I, so, I can imagine, yeah. I can imagine getting all of the storylines to not only in, in any kind of a narrative together, but then also figuring out exactly what to put in and what to leave out must've been an incredible juggling act in the editing room. So, Ollie, what's what's your experience with Love Actually? Um, well, I remember seeing it in the cinema, which obviously ages me. Um, it was how how long did we say it was, Lara? About um, like f- at least three months before either of us were born. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, and I think the thing is, as it is obviously Christmas linked, I have always likened it to like a box of Quality Street where there's lots of bits that you might like, but other people might hate and despise. And I think it's interesting looking at it nowadays when obviously um, people are a lot more sort of um, cautious about certain you know things that they might say. Um, and I think so. And I hadn't watched it for years, but then I did read. I don't know if you've... Um, had this mentioned on the podcast already, but um, uh, article by Lindy West. Yes, yeah. Oh. I've read some of it. I 
it was a lot longer when someone sent it to me and I was like, I need to, I'm not going to have time all now. But yes, I was sent it by you and Macintosh. And yeah, so it's, uh, yeah, it's a thing which it surprised me how popular this article seems to be. <laughs> it, it, honestly, it would be one of my, um, you know, with Desert Island Discs, they allow you to take a piece of literature. I think I would take that. <laughs> it's just, it is the most, you know, it would be a one on the acidity scale of how just barbarous and rage-filled it is. And, you know, I think she does hype up a lot of it, but there are also some things that it's worth thinking about that maybe wouldn't fly in 2020. Yeah, and you saying that, I feel like I'm feeling in a massive tangent mood today, reminded me of, um, on Two Minutes About Time, my favourite review I have ever read for About Time which absolutely slates it, but I think it's a good one. Um, so Ollie, Ollie and um, Rory, have either of you seen the film About Time? Yes. About Time? I'm not sure. Richard Curtis's film with uh, Donald Gleeson, Rachel McAdams, and time travel rom-com. It's, no, it's that one. Although it's I like f- time travel picks. Yeah, it's my favourite film. I think it's a beautiful film, but this guy definitely does not. So, Rant Engaged. I really hate this movie. I really effing hate this movie. I have painful, overwhelming hatred for this movie. Where to start? Honestly, I don't know where to start. Well, let's start with the dialogue. I think this is supposed to be funny in that Richard Curtis way of not being funny in the slightest. Ever since Notting Hill, as the same... um, He has the same kind of dialogue, bad puns, witty one-liners, and people so smug, you want to punch them in their entitled little faces until you beat the funny out of them. How did the guy who once co-wrote Blackadder go on to do this unfunny, irritating drivel? Okay, I've delayed long enough. What I really hate about the movie is its message, the same message that appears in every effing movie in this effing genre for the last 20 effing years. I'm slightly PGing it here. Um, (laughs) Embrace life and live. It's that easy. Notice the little things. Live every day to the fullest. Um, Live every day like it's your last. Hey, About Time, can I let you in on a secret? Life doesn't work that way. Well, thanks, About Time. Thanks for curing me of my social anxiety. Thanks for fixing my home life. Thanks for making me see that all I need to do is live and I'll be fine. Makes me so happy to know that a man who once made a career of writing samey, non-threatening romantic comedies is teaching me about living my life to the fullest. I'm so effing happy. Funny that a music movie that's so sentimental can make me feel so pessimistic. I just want to yank this movie's insincere optimism and throw it back in its face, wrapped to the big ball of cynicism. And of course, I now notice it here. I'm noticing it bloody everywhere, even in movies I liked. Instead of making me notice the little things in life worth living, this just makes me hate life. It didn't make me notice all the things. It made me notice the th- all the things people have that I don't. Look at these people's lives. They're perfect. Nothing goes wrong nothing ever effing goes wrong oh what is a bit awkward around other people boo effing who you live in a massive effing house in cornwall next to the beach you watch movies project to the back wall of your effing house and then you live for london where you instantly have a place to stay with a playwright then meet the girl of your dreams who instantly likes you and there's no effing effort involved in anything this guy ever effing does nothing and if there is, it's not shown. Like, he's a lawyer. We're just told this. No build. No him training to become one, which is hard work. He's just a lawyer. Everything is just handed to this guy on an effing platter. These are the most entitled effing people I've ever seen, and I've hated every effing one of them. Okay, I think oh I'm good now. Rant disengaged. 
I just How? love revisiting it. And I get an email every couple of weeks with someone else commenting on this, and it's just lovely. It's <laughs> uh, well, I mean, at least he's honest. <laughs> I think we've delayed long enough, haven't we? Yes. <laughs> I think I just don't want to talk about this scene. <laughs> well, I desperately want to talk about it, Luke. When you sent it to me, oh, I I regretted it immediately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, that scene. Yeah, it's such a yeah. It's like it's it's one of the most beautiful scenes in cinema, admittedly. I love it. I think it's so well done. But also there's a music there's like a music shop right next well like really close to my college and whenever i walk in there they've got that Joni mitchell cd on a stand right up there and it just makes me think of this every moment and it's just <laughs> yeah am i the only one who loves that scene because i can just relate to it well not exactly relate to it but relate to the crying bit oh no i absolutely love it i think it's the best thing richard curtis has ever done i love it but yeah. it's kind of like uh, how where do we go from here <laughs> <laughs> yeah good point um, incidentally, I've just realised both sides now that we hear is the last track on the album. So she just shove it in and put the last track on. It's a bit weird. Well, I mean, maybe that's her favourite track. You never know. Maybe. Um, <laughs> or maybe she's just listening to a different track and this is the track Richard Curtis chose the audience to hear. Who knows? Um, so... So Karen says, one present only each tonight. Who's got one for dad? And Bernie says, I have. Uh, Harry says, no, let Monty go first. I'll get it. No, no, I want to choose mine. I think I want this one. Apparently during this scene, Richard was told by Emma, um, "Do we need to make it more Christmassy. So he just directed her saying, do it again, but make it more Christmassy. Um <laughs> The one thing is, in the commentary he says, in the commentary he says, Emma told him. I don't know whether he means Emma Thompson or his girlfriend Emma. Um, (laughs) So it confused me. So I was just like, I'll say both. I'd imagine if I ask now, they won't remember. Um, It was a one off comment in the commentary from 2003. Uh, Yeah. Uh, So. Harry says, I have, of course, bought, sorry, he says, I have bought the traditional scarf. Why can't I speak today? I have Same. bought the traditional scarf as well, but this is my other slightly special personal one. And she says, thank you. That's a real first. And the kids shout, rip it. Um, he says, what is it? I'm going to, all right, I'll rip it. That's a surprise. And Daisy, apparently, is the character's name, says, what is it? It's a CD. Joni Mitchell. Wow. To continue your emotional education. And the sad thing about this is if she hadn't, if the necklace thing hadn't happened, this would have been a lovely gift. Yeah. It was a nice thought through lovely gift. I mean, even if she probably already had the CD. That's what I was thinking. I was thinking <laughs> when she talked about how much she loves Joni Mitchell, I did mm-hmm. kind of think, does she have this already? And he seemed to speak as though he might have been joking in that scene, but he seemed to speak as though he'd like never heard her mention her love for Joni Mitchell before. Mm. In in that previous scene, which kind and they're listening to another Johnny Mitchell track as well, aren't they? Yeah, um, which does remind me, Hugh Grant incidentally did sing a Johnny Mitchell song in about a boy. Oh my goodness! So he does. I've never thought about that. Yeah, it was. Uh, Leave me softly. It, yeah, it was commented on in the commentary. Um, 
Hugh Grant was like, "This that's clearly where you got the idea from. You just watched me and about a boy and, and thought, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Hugh Grant's great on the Love Actually commentary. To anyone who hasn't heard it, Hugh Grant is like really great with the banter and his in, in, and his complete hatred for Colin Firth throughout the entire commentary is hilarious. <laughs> the commentary is Richard Curtis, Hugh Grant, Bill Nye, and Thomas Sangster. Uh, which is great, despite the fact that Thomas Sangster was definitely too young to be watching the film he was in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'd say one thing I hate about this particular moment, though, is that I I can't stand hating Alan Rickman being so slimy. Like the one time when he's been the bad guy and I've actually really not liked him. All other times, you know, I will accept him with open arms as a terrorist, as a mean sheriff of nottingham and etc etc but this is where i draw the line hmm. yeah I, I can see that but we have talked a lot about the fact that you can or at least we have found you kind of through his affair liked him but hate his actions is what we've said but i kind of get your point as well as to how you can just completely hate him um uh, what, what, what do you get from from him in the film rory do you do you find that you you like him as a character but hate his actions or do you just despise him overall <laughs> i you know i mean they're they're married for a reason you know there's there's some good in him but you know he, the the and and the but the betrayal is just so complete that it, it's hard to reconcile you know you you know it's you know like you don't want to kill him but you definitely want to punch him in the mouth I think the way that, I think we discussed this, the way that you get the slight relatability with him is the fact that you see Harry and Mia flirting before you find out he's married. So a yeah. tiny part of you is invested in Harry and Mia's relationship before you find out how wrong it is, which mm-hmm. I think is a sort of really clever way of kind of getting the audience to 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 feel for him a little bit, despite how horrible Mia is. She's the problem I have. Like... I don't know. Like considering how I how I talk about relating with him and hating his actions, I I see nothing in Mia. I would, I if she yeah, I, I'd punch her in the face. Definitely. <laughs> and the Mia bash begins. The Mia, the Mia bash begins. Because <laughs> it's just not the holidays without a Mia bash. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the traditional scarf that Harry's bought. Um, she, Jenny Mitchell CD to continue your emotional education. She says, "Yes, goodness, that's great." He says, "My brilliant wife." This is just, mm. And Karen says, "Ha, ah, yes, actually, do you mind if I just absent myself for a second? All that ice cream, uh, darling. Could you make sure the kids are ready to go? I'll be back in a minute." This is actually, you know, the sadder thing about this is that they don't open their presents with their mum. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think the sad thing is the sad thing as well is how much Harry seems to think he got away with it. I don't know why that's sad. I'm not feeling for Harry, but it's kind of like at this point he has no idea. Mm. It's rub salt into the wound with the shot of her in the skimpiest of skimpy nightwear and the locket. Yeah, I, I, whilst it works, it does also kind of feel like yeah, we know where the necklace went, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> But no, I, I I think it's, yeah. What I never got is why when she spotted him around the necklace aisle, he didn't just play it safe and get one for her as well. Yeah, <laughs> that's that a very make, good point. It would make him feel better about it, I think. 
like wrongfully, obviously, but it would make him feel better about the affair because at least he's got his wife a nice or better present. I, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be telling Alan. Future warning for any she... potential partners of Luke. <laughs> he doesn't mean it. Um, but yeah, all the all the photos and stuff that looking at while the music's playing, it's just oh, it's great. And I always, whenever you see these things in films, I always do just love the idea of like that they would have had to have done a day of going out and taking photos. A few of them mm. would have been photoshopped, I'd imagine, but some of these would probably be easier to just get, actually. Um, but yeah, it's weird. That's the thing that fascinates me, but it always does with film. <laughs> I just think as well, I think in the hands of anybody else, and yeah, I'm more than aware that Richard Curtis can very much, you know, make something really mawkish when he wants to. But I think it's, it's just the, the single camera shot for a lot of it and just how beautifully understated Emma Thompson is. Like she's not throwing her arms about and wailing. No. It's all about, you know, it's the depression of emotions that as a, and it's even harder to watch when she has to almost like pull the kids just completely get over it. And I, I, th- I think it's also that, like, she partially had her suspicions until this point, but would have told herself, mm. like, no, it's stupid. That to suddenly have the realisation, yeah, that... Um, so how far... I've asked this to everyone when we've had this, um, a hint of this story. How far do you think that Harry and Mia actually got with each other? Now I'm more inclined to think that maybe something did happen. Yeah, it's certainly not a nice thing to dwell on, but, yeah. And what about you, Rory? How far do you think they got? Um, apparently, um, from from reading in uh, background on oh, on you've film, done this, okay? Yeah, uh, I was going to do yeah, that. <laughs> but, but well, I mean, to to me, it seemed like there had more had gone on, and then later discovered that was confirmed by the um, by the writer. So because the writer wasn't. Um, like when they when they talked about this, yeah. According to the director, according to Richard, yeah, they actually had an affair. So, and then I don't know whether you got to this part that he actually has then since about uh, since decided that he's changed his mind, <laughs> and that it and that it, they'd never slept together. <laughs> a little post, a little post release damage control. Like holy, it was. I think uh, at one point, um, Richard and Emma were live tweeting the whole thing. Yeah. Um, and that's that's when he kind of like he changed his mind, <laughs> which is like. But I, I like the fact that we don't know. I think it would have been harder to have any connection with Harry if we did actually see him go off to bed with Mia. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Because yeah, the idea that it happens is not the same as knowing that it happens. Mm. In a way, we're in the same shoes as Karen at this point. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's sweet. But, but but you fear the worst. So yeah, it's this is definitely one of the greatest scenes that Richard Curtis has has ever done. Um, I mean, how, how familiar are both of you with other Richard Curtis works? Are you, are you fans um, or tend to avoid them? Do you have a very do you have a very mixed relationship with him? I've got to say, like I would say, more recently, I haven't enjoying his films but growing up i loved uh, four weddings and a funeral um and not notting hill um and you know, I, I know vicar dibley blackadder and i know he had a little bit of involvement with bridget jones's diary well he wrote the screenplay for the two films i think 
Yeah. 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 There you go. And so, um, yeah, but lately with things like uh, About Time and uh, The Boat That Rocked, just I feel like I'm sort of betraying my Britishness by <laughs> saying that I don't like a Richard Curtis film. But yeah, not just not for me. No, I, I get that completely. Obviously, About Time is the one I love, but I also get why people don't like it. It mm. um, it's it also has a lot more benefits upon rewatch. About Time does, for example, like it was what I don't know whether you've just seen it once, but like when I first watched it, it did nothing for me. For some reason, I felt like watching it again, and I was like, "Oh, this is all right." And then the more I watched it, it suddenly became this is the greatest film I've ever seen, <laughs> which I do. Um, so I don't expect everyone to watch About Time five times. Uh, but yeah, uh, which apparently I have this year. I'm sure it's been more than that. But according to Letterboxd, it says I've reviewed this film five times. Um, so there we go. Uh, but yeah, well, it, that's it how an be... MXM show works. <laughs> It, it would be fun to talk to you 10 years from now and see if you love it as much. Cause I find some movies are just yeah. very much a thing of where you are in your own life and you know, you love it then. And then you go back and go, eh, not so much. Yeah, I can see that. That's why I was going to ask Robert, my co-host to at some point that I'd love to do the entire show again, 10 years from now. Yeah. I'd love to do minute by minute on the film, like just completely again, see where, how much we remember, Likely a lot of those random facts about the names of extra in the background will have vanished. Um, it could be good fun. But yeah, at the moment, I like Richard Curtis is the sort of guy, like he is who I want to be basically as a filmmaker. Uh, what about you, Rory? How are you, are you familiar with Richard's work? Whatever yeah. bits of it made its way to the States. I was, I was introduced to Blackadder years ago and, and became quite a fan of, of, of Blackadder for a number of reasons, because because in America they don't do good historical comedy because Americans are too dumb. So <laughs> not disagreeing there. You could, you could you could not set like an American comedy during World War One because no one would know what you were talking about. So the thing would fail brilliantly. Um, so I, I really appreciate that the, that the you know there, there's um there's another show about there's a comedy about Shakespeare. Yes, uh, which Upstart I, Crow. Yeah, it's and it's just it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. But you know that's you know that's the kind of stuff we import from our smarter cousins and go, hey, <laughs> got anything for people who think? Um, and of course, but, we, of course, we haven't mentioned Mr. Bean. See, Mr. Bean, I don't. You know, it's like, yeah, okay. I think that's like a uniquely English thing. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I think it like it's it's traveled to a lot of countries and a lot of people like it. But I think he's definitely like a British figure. Like, yeah. you yeah. go to any like tourist place in England, and they've probably got Mister Bean bobbleheads for sale. It's just—I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure, plenty of my friends like it, but that's just one of those things where I think he's brilliant in Blackadder, and Mister Bean is just a different style of humor that I'm kind of. Eh, eh. I get that. It was. It, I just remembered. It was kind of. I remember the weirdness of realizing that like different stages of, I mean, obviously I'm 16. There's not a ton of stages of my life, but different stages <laughs> of my life, Richard Curtis has influenced them. Like I loved Mr. Bean when I, I still love it now, but I was a major Mr. Bean super fan when I was little. So the fact that Mr., like Richard co-created Mr. Bean and then like a massive Doctor Who fan, he, Richard wrote my favorite episode of Doctor Who. And I oh. did, and it was like that realization when it was like, my favorite episode was written by my favorite writer, of course. <laughs> Who else could have written it? Um, 
so yeah, it's he he is in my mind a genius in the sense that he makes what whatever the wide range of stuff he's written because there are he does a lot of drama as well as comedy and all the different levels it always seems to fit exactly what i like <laughs> well he's he's able to i mean he's able to tap in to obviously something universal because um i mean there's there's a, a lot of films he's known for in the uk but then there's stuff like love actually and and notting hill and um bridget jones which have just transcended I mean, Bridget Jones had underlying material, but just a lot of stuff has really tapped into something, you know, at least in the English speaking world and yeah. you know, made him, you know, if if not everybody knows everything he's done, everybody knows something he's done. Yes, so. that, that's what I've been saying to people. And of course, outside of that is Comet Relief, which is a massive charity mm. and television event every two years here. Like... And he just happened to found one of the greatest and like most successful charities in Britain because he fancied a girl. Mm. Uh, have I told any of you this story or are you aware why Comet Relief was founded? Lara, have I mentioned this to you before? Uh, well, it's not ringing any bells, so you okay. might as well tell um, it. So Richard Curtis, uh, there was this girl he liked and she was talking about how she was going off to different countries to do some like charity work and stuff. And he thought, oh, this will be perfect. I'll come with her. And he was like, you know, we'll both have to, you know, share a tent overnight and, you know, stuff could happen. Um, and so he, he went there, went to book the trip, and they said, there's no point sending both of you young people to the same country. I'll send you off to this country, and I'll send her off to that one. Um, oh, no. There, and while he was on that trip, he discovered how, like, horrible everything was, and he decided, I need to put together my comedian friends and raise some money wow so yeah it's i I just i just i just love that for richard curtis everything seems to draw to like come back to love in a way (laughs) Uh, yeah it's a good theme it is and the, the, the final mention in my random tangent of richard curtis's work is the film that he is most proud of but probably almost guarantee neither none of you have seen it is a film called The Girl in the Cafe. Huh. I think it was a t- nope, it was a TV it. movie about the G8 summit starring Bill Nye and Kelly MacDonald, and it is beautiful. It's a drama with like oh. hints of romance, but it's more about fighting for human rights, and it's just amazing. And it was kind of like, I was like, as soon as I watched it, it was like, why has no one ever mentioned this to me before? And then I find out that it was the thing that Rich is most proud of making. So, yeah. Wow. Shout out to the girl in the cafe. Mm. You know, anyway. because and, and you know, you know how you know it's a, it's 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 an English film is because it's set at the G eight summit. Americans don't make films about set at the G eight summit. So, <laughs> I think it was made in association with HBO. HBO though, so it's a hint of American. <laughs> um, well, it's it's, it's yeah. made in association, meaning, hey, could you write us a check? But it wasn't their idea. <laughs> Yeah, probably. Yeah, there's a there's a similar kind of sad drama about poverty that he did called Mary and Martha. Um, very very similar themes, but it's oh, I cried all the way through. It starts like a sort of standard Hallmark American movie, and I was like, this the way it's going, and then next thing I know, I've been in tears for two hours. Um, so I recommend that. I think that's got Hilary Swank in it. Uh, but it's yeah, another another great Richard Curtis movie. 
Um, so the Joni Mitchell song starts to play, and we do we do see as she we do hear as we walk off Harry saying, "All right, take it easy," and Bernie saying, "Mine first, mine." It, I find it weird that Harry doesn't didn't say, "Okay, wait for your mum to come back before we like unwrap anymore," because they they make it like it's a big family event tradition thing. Yes. That I don't know to rush it just seems a bit odd. It it is it is completely odd from a actual people living their lives point of view, but it makes complete sense from the movie's point of view. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's also completely odd. I th- I mean I know traditions, but I don't know anyone whose tradition is to open presents on the twenty third of December. Twenty third is odd. Mm. It's it's possibly just to do with obviously this film being re edited. That I'm, I don't think some of these days quite line up as they would have originally intended to. <laughs> Yeah, that makes. This sense. is probably supposed to be Christmas Eve. What, what, yeah, because they. Um, but the Christmas Eve title card doesn't come up until the end of this sequence. It it makes perfect sense that they went back and said, you know what, the 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 Christmas theme work is working for us, so let's go back and and reimagine this as a Christmas theme movie as opposed to just have it be a background event. Yeah. I I really like it. And so this song we haven't actually mentioned is Both Sides Now by Joni Mitchell, which is the name of the album. Um, um, And that's the end of my notes. (laughs) (laughs) I thought I had more on it. That that was it. It's track 12 on the album. It, it it will probably make me seem like a cultural illiterate, but I don't I don't think the Joni Mitchell version holds a candle to the Judy Collins version. So when I when I hear it, I'm like it's a little jarring for me. It's like that's a terrible read of that song. But I've only heard it in this film. So ah well, if you hear the the original version, which I think probably from like '67 um, with Judy Collins, is is completely lovely. And I had trouble, like, uh, it, it, it's actually a little jarring for me to listen to Johnny Mitchell sing it. Yeah, it's... Nice. it's mm, I didn't even know it was a cover, to be honest. It was what? Oh, yeah, it's absolutely a cover. Um, although, I, that's a good question as to who, who wrote it. I thought I I've thought... got the actually soundtrack album on my Richard Curtis shelf right next to me. Hang on. I can check the credits. <laughs> I knew this shelf would come useful someday. God. Um, you're a visionary. To to any of the listeners who want to know about the uh, the birth of the shelf, if they if they watch the um, the opening ceremony of the Move by Minute um, convention thing uh, a few months ago, there during the opening ceremony, I have to mute my mic because my dad is fitting the shelf, <laughs> <laughs> and I think he comes by and says hi because that's that's the professional way of doing virtual conventions. Um, <laughs> But a shout out to my dad for for fitting a shelf. Um, well done. <laughs> it says written by Joni Mitchell. Yes, yes, but but first released uh, by uh, Judy Collins. Huh. I had no idea any of that. That is fascinating. It appeared on on the U.S. singles chart during the fall of 1968. Hmm. So there is quite a story behind it, but you know how much her life will have changed between her writing the song and her singing. it. Yeah. Yeah. And can we just talk about how great the soundtrack is for this film? <laughs> we can. I believe you're the host. You can, yeah, in fact. Oh, yeah, good <laughs> idea. Good point. Um, this soundtrack is great, isn't it? Glad we all agree. 
sorry. I got distracted. But yes, it's a very good soundtrack. And I love the fact that in London they have like the live orchestra thing because that is one of the best so, experiences ever. Yeah, I so want to go to the live orchestra thing. Uh, they normally tour every year, but it's only London this year. So next year I'm going to try and go to the Love Actually orchestra screening. Although technically, Lara, to be finicky on a film show, score, not a soundtrack. Yeah. I made that mistake in the credits of my own film, so now I'm <laughs> spotting it. In the fact that I credited our score composer as soundtrack composer, and it's not. And yeah, that's a thing that I'm going to have to live with for the rest of my life. <laughs> People coming up to me and saying, you credited that wrong, although no one did, but I feel it. Mm-hmm. That's the albatross around your neck, my friend. <laughs> I have never heard that figure of speech. I don't albatross think anyone British has. No. You say that and I just remember the Monty Python sketch with John Cleese <laughs> holding the albatross. <laughs> uh, it's, it's from the poem, Rhyme of the yeah. Ancient Mariner. Yes. Uh, I don't know what else to say to that. Not <laughs> 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 It's very long, but to sum it up, basically, um, it's a ship. They're sort of stranded and uh, it's all going very, very wrong. Uh, They shoot an albatross and one person shoots an albatross and they're not very happy with him for doing that. So they tie the albatross around his neck. He has to like wear his shame. Because killing an albatross is considered like like bad luck. So they blame him. Yeah, we we don't... uh... And that that that's the story of why we don't have albatross. Uh, but no, it's it is a long poem, isn't it? Oh, flipping heck! I'm just looking at it now. <laughs> you know, it, it it's from a time when people didn't have much to do. So that is how. Um, I think I think length. you'll find right. We are in a time where people don't have much to do. <laughs> Touche, Lara. <laughs> yeah, I feel like maybe. Yeah, maybe, well, maybe, maybe poetry was then what the whole Move by Minute community is now. Maybe. But I think that, Lara, this is now like, you know, you're out of excuses for not reading this. So. <laughs> oh, yeah. You, 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 I'm, I'm quizzing you on this next episode. <laughs> <laughs> no. Love, actually, this lovely, sweet and laughter-inducing moments. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, so Karen comes down and shouts, "It's a miracle! You're all dressed. Come on, come on, come on! We're horribly late. Come on, then, in the car, in the car. Where do we think she's going?" Because if know, this see was some Christmas lights, yeah. Because I feel like maybe how this, when this scene was originally intended, in terms of how it would fit in better, would be just before the um, the the Christmas play on Christmas Eve. Yeah, that's what I thought. But that's then how I, realized... I picture it. But then, yeah, this is before Christmas Eve. <laughs> yeah, that's what I mean. And then I realised, hang, hang about, that's before Christmas Eve. That's before any of this shit happens. So why? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe because it would make sense with the presents as well, with the unwrapping yeah. one present before they go on Christmas Eve. Yeah, it makes like... perfect sense because that that I is know... a Christmas Eve tradition that some people have. Yeah, exactly. I'd never had that tradition. My parents made me wait because they were evil. But you know, I always got like... new pajamas on Christmas Eve. I don't know why that was a thing, but that was a thing. And I, I can't remember if it's still a thing. Uh, I guess I'll find out. I mean, fairs. Maybe, though, um, they were actually going there. Because, I mean, to be fair, that third lobster costume did look like it would take a while to put on. <laughs> Just to the night before. True! 
Actually, it could be a dress rehearsal. Oh, yeah, it could be. That, that's our canon now. It's a dress rehearsal. <laughs> I just wanted to say as well, quickly, um, one thing that happens quite a lot on the sitcom podcast is I tend to be spotting weird things in the background. Yes, what have you found? And with, <laughs> with this, I noticed what looked like two sort of portraits of a demonic set of teeth. It's like black and then a white or white teeth looking things that was horrifying. And then above the sofa, there's this weird sort of um, cloth shroud thing that looks like a game of Tetris gone horribly wrong. It is very strange. Where where, where are the teeth? So they're sort of right at the back to the right of the tree. There's one that's... Oh, yeah. That's weird. Do they just... Are they just a family that like abstract arts <laughs> it's just such <laughs> it's the concept of karen or harry going out seeing that for sale in like i don't know where, where would they go shopping mns or <laughs> seeing that for sale at like mns home if there's an mns home there's an next home i don't know in a shop that sells stuff um like most shops do um and they'd <laughs> they, they and they'd be like that's what we need to put by our Christmas tree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Or even the concept of the set decorator. Like, <laughs> the universe of making this film going, I need to get my hands on that orange picture with the teeth. Yeah. I need to find out who the set decorator is on this film. <laughs> For about time, it was a woman called Liz Griffiths, who's a, a really nice person. Shout out to Liz Griffiths. Um, I've no idea who it is for this. Someone called Caroline Smith. Who was the set decorator on Love Actually? Yeah. She also worked on Christopher Robin, Florence Foster Jenkins, Johnny English Reborn. Who's the production designer? That is another good point. Let's go check. That's Jim Clay. I did know that, Jim Clay. I remember his credit on screen now at the start. Uh, He did Children of Men. He did Matchpoint, Murder in the Orient Express. He did... Yeah, Johnny English. I feel like quite often, yeah, the production designer and the um, set decorator tend to work together a lot, don't they? Well, the, the production designer is the designs the look of the entire picture. They're usually like the first person hired, even before like the DP or anything like that. So the production designer would have a crew, meaning people that they bring with them on yeah. each project. So, yeah. I remember Liz and JP for about time mentioning that briefly. Oh, and the production designer also worked on Maybe Baby, which is a actually pretty good um, comedy from 2000. Not as good as the book. And the title's not as good as the book either. Uh, are, either of you, are any of you familiar with Maybe Baby? No. Nope. Yes, I have seen it a very, very long time ago, though. So I, do, you, do you know what the book was called? The, ben, the original Ben Alton book, which is so much better than Maybe Baby. No. Okay, so to those who don't know, it's about a couple that are trying to conceive a child but are unable. And it's about them like going through different stages of working out how to have a child. Uh, the original book was called Inconceivable, which is such a good title. Hey. And for some reason, <laughs> and for some reason, whoever was working on the film, let's call it Baby, just so we mm. can play that one Paul McCartney song in the film. Oh wow! <sighs> which is a fine song, but still, I don't think it was Paul McCartney originally. But Paul McCartney sings it in the. I don't know, um, but. It was just kind of like, oh, Inconceivable, such a good title, and the book is hilarious. 
Um, so shout out to Ben Elton. Not that he needs a shout out, but shout out to Ben Elton who wrote the book. <laughs> and incidentally also wrote Upstart Crow and co-wrote Blackadder. So we have been mentioning his work today. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and so are we ready to move on to Daniel and Sam? Yep. Yes. So Daniel says, has she, has she, start again. So Daniel says, has she noticed you yet? Sam says, no, but you know, the thing about romance is people only get together right at the very end. Of course. By the way, I feel bad. I never asked you about your love. About... By the way, I feel bad. I never asked you about how your life. I'm going to have to keep this all in, I think. Uh, um, right. By the way, I feel bad. I never asked you how your love life's going. And Daniel says, ha, no, as you know, that was a done deal long ago. Unless, of course, Claudia Schiffer calls, in which case I want you out of this house straight away, you wee motherless mongrel. Uh, little, little cruel, really, considering the circumstances. <laughs> uh, mother died literally like four weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> you wee motherless mongrel. It's a good line, though. It's line. great, but it's cruel. And that's why I love it even more. Yeah. So this was done all in one shot. Uh, this whole exchange, um, mostly because they ran out of time the day, <laughs> could only film it once. Um, oh, there was a tiny bit more dialogue. Sam says, "Oh," and Daniel says, "No, no, I want to have sex in every room, including yours." <laughs> Who says that to however old he is? Who, Who says, says that, that to a kid? Son? <laughs> no, who says that to a kid in general? Yeah, but I feel like specifically, as I know he's a stepdad, but specifically as his like, I assume, legal son. That's yeah. a bit weird, isn't it? It's, it's funny, it's I have weird. to admit, but, like, who the... F- who I mean, admittedly, that? admittedly, I don't know that what these circumstances would be like, and I'd imagine, you know, it's kind of a a position he's, he's used to, in a way, because okay. of how his dad's kind of a mate to him at this point. I don't I, know. I could see... You, you might say that to your son if he was, like, 21. Yeah. But... I, I don't imagine saying it to a kid that age ever. No. The only excuse for it, which is a very loose excuse, is that the kids had to become an adult in a way because of losing his mum. That yeah, he's been treated like an adult the whole time. That is the excuse I've ever heard. Try and come up with a stronger one then. I don't want to. I don't want to make excuses! <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I, I prefer Liam Neeson when he's like, killing sex traffickers in Albania. (laughs) And then not getting arrested uh, at any point. (laughs) At any point. Yeah. Which is is a movie that's two hours long of not feeling even slightly bad about people being murdered. (laughs) It's only only kind of after you come out of it that you think, hang on, to save one person, because he kind of of leaves the other victims of sex trafficking behind as well. He literally goes through all of these rooms with these dying people and is like, oh, you're not my daughter. I'll go to the next one. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I only saw Taken for the first time like a few weeks ago, so it's very fresh on my mind. But they, these were the things that I was thinking as soon as the film finished. It was like, hang on. <laughs> what about those people? Yeah. <laughs> I mainly prefer him when he's um, made of plastic and has two faces. <laughs> That yeah, that that works too. I, I, my my favorite Liam Neeson thing is his scene in Life's Too Short. Have either of you seen that? No. 
No. So in Ricky Gervais' sitcom Life's Too Short, which is starring Warwick Davis, which is not a good show by any stretch of the imagination, there is a scene where Liam Neeson, as himself, turns up and um, says he wants to try stand-up comedy. Such a a great, hilarious scene. The, the, The scenes with celebrities in Life's Too Short are the best moments, kind of like he did with extras, where like having celebrities play satirized version of themselves are brilliant. Um, and there's, there's another line he says briefly, where he says, "I've written a list of the type of, of the type of comedy I want to do." And he says, "I'm very good at writing lists. I think that's why Spielberg cast me in, as Oscar Schindler in Schindler's List." <laughs> it's just so such a strange scene, but it's it's such. A, I'll, I will link that to all of you later. Um, but there's 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 also a great scene in the show where. Um, He's to, like Ricky Gervais talking to Johnny Depp, and he and he's like, "I've got this new, I've got this new film I'm doing with Tim Burton." He's like, "Guess who my leading lady is?" And he's like, "Is it Helena Bonham Carter?" He's like, "What? You've read the script already?" <laughs> it's, just, <laughs> it's, oh, it's it's a uh, yeah, it's a, it, it's a very weak show with a few good moments. Um, Fair. So I wouldn't recommend watching it, but I would recommend watching clips from it. Hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, what what do you, Rory? And Ollie, think of the whole scene, uh, well, the whole story with Daniel and Sam. Because for me, it's my favorite story in the film. It's very charming. His, um, you know, his uh, talking to the kid like he's a like a mate is kind of odd, but you know, it's it's. I mean, it's a it's a and it's a it's an adorable storyline. Yeah, and it's one of them. I haven't done it with the others yet. I know I need to. Um, that I have I've cut the entire story out of the film and made a short film just out of their story. And oh. it stands alone on its own really well. Stories won't stand on their own as well as that. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's That's very what you do when you've got too much time, is just re-edit films. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's very likable, and it, and it has none of, the, uh, none, of, none of the baggage that the Alan Rickman story has, for instance. The... Now, I, think, I think these two stories we see today are the two strongest stories. Yes. For me, the weakest story is Sarah and Carl, Laura Linney's story. I yeah. can't, I, mm. I'm just not a fan. I, c- yeah. I couldn't tell you one fact about Carl. Uh, <laughs> like, he is, basically, he is good-looking man, and that's it. In a way, it's refreshing to have an underwritten male character rather than an underwritten Best. female character, but when mm. that's the only thing you've got going for you, it's, mm. it's not a, yeah. I, all, all, all I would have needed to like Sarah and Carl's story is a little scene with them either going out for a meal or walking and talking or something before we then have the sex scene. Because we don't see anything other than them dancing and then them having sex. Like, we don't get any chemistry between them, really, that it's just, yeah, it feels a little too weak for me. So I'm kind of relieved that we were done with that story episodes ago. Like, that, that, their story wrapped up very early on in the film. I have to say my favourite story in the whole thing, and it's not a popular one um, from what I'm led to believe, is um, Martin Freeman and... Um, yeah, no, I can see that. Page. I, I, just... I rewatched it. The, I rewatched Love Actually as part of a Richard Curtis rewatch like a couple of weeks ago, and I was surprised as to how invested I was in that story. I was like, I did not I think... think I'd like the, this story so much. Yeah, I mean, like, the sort of the nudity aside and everything, I just think it's the most adorable out of all of them. It's also the most healthy relationship in the film. Yes. 
Like, no one's anyone's boss. <laughs> like, it's... Um, yeah, it, I, I like it. And weirdly, last episode, I really liked Chris Marshall's about going to America. <laughs> I didn't think I would, because it was definitely problematic. But when we were watching it, like, I was just smiling the whole way through. I was like, so weirdly charming. Because you you spend the entire thing thinking he's going to fail, that the fact he succeeds is actually kind of sweet. <laughs> no, it's just charming because it's Chris Marshall. As we've said before, yeah, put Chris Marshall's lines into the mouth of Sean William Scott, <laughs> and it's a different movie. How many times have we bloody said that? I've run out of things to say, and the good thing about having different guests on each episode is I can say the same thing every episode, and Very they true. haven't heard it. So, have we got any other comments, I guess? <laughs> Uh, nope. <laughs> on the film, <laughs> how long have we been? Getting I mean, yeah. I, I I would just say personally that I was joking a little bit earlier when I said that. Oh goodness, this scene, I regret it. But it is, as I say, I think it's genuinely the best thing that Richard Curtis has ever filmed, and it's you know Emma Thompson is just one of the greatest actors ever, and it, this sums it up perfectly. I remember hearing that, like, take after take after take, she'd just do this, which is incredible. Um, yeah, it's it's a beautiful scene. I don't know... I can't off the top of my head think of a scene of a Richard Curtis film that's better than this. I could think of a Richard Curtis... several Richard Curtis films that are better than this film, but mm-hmm. this scene in itself, I think, is quite possibly, yeah, better than at least the majority of other Richard Curtis film stuff, especially for emotion's sake. Uh, it, it's nice that they got Emma Thompson and they actually gave her something to do, you know, because you see a lot of films like this where there's a lot of people in it and there's not enough drama to go around. So it was nice to see her getting something that she yeah. could really sink her teeth into and, and make an impression. So Interesting fact about Emma Thompson is her feature film debut was a Richard Curtis movie. Ah, Lovely. Film called The Tall Guy. It's a it's a good film, the tall guy, but it's it, it goes a lot more into kind of surrealist comedy in places than other Richard Curtis films. Yeah. So I guess unless there's any other comments on all the tangents we've had today, um, mm. now I'm trying to think if there's a weird way we can loop it all back to Rodney Dangerfield, but I'm I don't I can't think of any reason no. way how. Um, well, Alan Rickman just just showing her no respect. <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 that's, that's the still, best you're gonna get. Yeah, at that's half still than, yeah it's uh, yeah. <laughs> I can't think of anything to say. Um, so, in in any order, you know, pr- promote your stuff, plug everything you'd like to plug. Sure, I'm at Major Hawk one nine six two on Twitter. Have you got have you got a film, Rory, particularly that you're most proud of being involved in? Um, I, I, uh, you know, you, you mentioned uh, Hallmark movies, and 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 years ago, in in two thousand two, in fact, I actually produced a Christmas drama for Hallmark. That what I, I say actually... about Hallmark movies? Please don't say it was really bad. I can't remember what I said. <laughs> no, no, it's it's a, a lot of them are. This I I'd like to think this one isn't. Um, in all fairness, it... we hardly get any of them here in the UK. <laughs> you what? Like we don't really get Hallmark movies here anyway. Yeah. I've only seen a few. No, this this was actually it's a uh, it's a Christmas drama based on a a, uh, a true incident in World War Two that happened during the Battle of the Bulge when there was this small truce 
uh, between some American and German soldiers um, in the in the vein of not not exactly in the vein of the the famous 1914 Christmas truce, but uh, it's it's a story that's a little bit known in the United States. So we were able to turn it into a film, and uh, Hallmark liked it. So yeah, what, what was that film called? It's called Silent Night. Starred uh, Linda Hamilton. Uh-huh. Alexander Hamilton. Sorry, I've got a bit of musical theatre for you. I like. I like how with the. I, I. I was just genuinely impressed. It's about Linda Hamilton, and just went straight to a different Hamilton. Uh... <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Musical theatre nerd. All I've got in my head now is somehow reworking Hamilton into the Terminator. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Because as long as you're traveling through time, why not? So. <laughs> oh, I see the writer as your surname. Was it a relative then? That's my brother. Your brother. Your brother. Uh, that makes sense. There we go. I will see if that's viewable anywhere in the UK because it does sound interesting and it's got pretty good reviews on IMDb. So that's great. Yeah, I was. I mean, it. It. Um. It's. I, I tell you, there's a certain satisfaction in like making something, and like years later, people are still looking at it and commenting on it and thinking you did good. So. Yeah. That 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 must be great. So, Ollie, plug yes. anything you'd like to plug. Um. Well, obviously, stand-up's a bit of a non-starter at the minute, but I do have my own um, stand-up page on Facebook, just Ollie Ryder stand-up. And uh, my main thing that I do is sit hand with my best friends, Eddie O'Keefe and Emma Bashforth. It's where we review episodes of Friends, episode by episode. Um, I can't stand Friends. They both like it. Um, we've just started season three now. And uh, at some point, we're going to be looking at other sitcoms as well, like How I Met Your Mother is the next one we're scheduled to do. What's that, like four uh, years from now? (laughs) Well, I'm trying to push for us to take a bit of a break from Friends because I need it and and do that. But uh, And the other thing that I do as well, I've done some episodes for it, but um, All Things Dark and Distasteful is sort of like my passion project where I just talk about creepy things from um cults to horror films and things like that um real life in the uk is um you know it's almost dark and distasteful enough as it is already and i don't have as much time as i would like to um contribute towards it but hopefully sort of in the new year i'll try and be a bit more strict with myself to actually get on with it (laughs) yeah and you've got twitter as well haven't you and all that stuff. I do. Yeah. Uh, it's um, at Sitcand. Um, Dark Distasteful is um, at Dad, at A-T-D-A-D. And uh, I think mine is still uh, Grim with two M's underscore F underscore F. I really need to change because that was my thing from when I was still reviewer. Lara, where can the listeners find you on social media? Uh, well, you can find me on Instagram, Lara Collier underscore official. You can also find me on Facebook, Lara Collier Music. You can get my song Moving On, which was in the short film that Luke directed, Unstable, on Spotify, iTunes, Amazon Music, all that jazz. You can also find it on YouTube, on Luke's YouTube channel, Bossblow Productions, where there are two of my music videos, Moving On and The Happy Song, Venture if you dare. And then I have my own YouTube channel where I have two videos on there. Um, uh, I do an original song called A Thousand, and... I do a cover of Burn from Hamilton. So, yeah. I love how your plugs include my plugs. 
I know, right? <laughs> it's, it's great. <laughs> um, so the listeners can find me on Twitter at llama underscore bottle zero on Instagram, the Luke on Facebook at Luke Allen Film. All podcasts, radio appearances, newspaper articles, short films, anything I'm remotely involved in is over at LukeAllen.co.uk. This show's on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Christmas Act Pod. And they can also find us on IMDb. Thanks so much for listening, listeners. Lara and I will be back, hopefully, with a plethora of guests, depending on how on earth schedules work, uh, tomorrow to the listeners. Um, uh, everything that hasn't happened in the film that you remember happens. <laughs> um, <laughs> Fun. I normally say what happens, but let's skim read this. Let's, let's spam through this. You're going to hear from us tomorrow when Billy Mac is number one, Martin Freeman and Joanna Page are at the doorstep, Colin Firth arrives home and then shifts after a rally, and Laura Lenny and Carl are awkward in the office, the Prime Minister opens Christmas cards, Laura Neeson tries to speak to Sam but he's practising, Laura Lenny sees her brother, Kira Knightley, cards soon, Bill Murray tells his manager he loves him, Prime Minister opens a card from Natalie and decides to track her down and eventually finds her and decides to come to the school play, Colin Firth travels to meet Aurelia, Prime Minister sees his sister at the concert, the concert happens, the Prime Minister and Natalie are kissing and revealed in front of everyone, Emma Thompson comes down and written a potential affair, Laura Neeson tells Sam to tell Joanna he loves her and Liam Neeson meets the woman of his own who's played by Claudia Schiffer Colin Firth meets Aurelia's family and searches for her, Rowan Atkinson holds security up so Sam can chase after Joanna, Buddy Max sings naked on TV, Sam speaks to Joanna Colin Firth proposes to Aurelia and says yes and the family will kiss him uh, so breathe, yeah that is what we have <laughs> tomorrow Luke you're gonna die yeah the, the listeners um you can see in my notes that when I was writing my notes, I didn't know the character names and just listed the actors. I know them now, but when I did my notes at first, yeah. So that That's would be, be a long episode, especially with many guests. It'll be a long ah! one. It'll be a fun one. Um, I was going to say, what if we do a commentary on that point? But that doesn't work either because then the viewers wouldn't know exactly the point to start. Oh, we'll figure out something, listeners. Christmas Actually theme is performed by Ethan O'Mahony and is a cover of God Only Knows by the Beach Boys. Christmas Actually is produced by Bottle O Productions and is distributed by Lemming Drops Studio. For more podcasts and blogs, visit lemmingdrops.com.